Welcome to Embargo, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your co-hosts, Brian Fleming, here as always with my co-host, friend, and colleague, Mr. Tim O'Toole. What is up, Tim? What is up, Brian? You should count all legal votes and not count illegal votes. <laughs> That's my mantra for today. Tim's really throwing down the gauntlet there with that controversial position to start. Um, thank you for tuning in uh, to uh, the latest episode of Embargoed. We obviously waited an extra week because we were waiting to see uh, the outcome of the U.S. presidential election. We now have an outcome. Uh, we are recording this on Thursday, November 12. Um, and we now know that Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States to be inaugurated in January. And so to follow up on the discussion that we had uh, in the last episode, we are, this is essentially our post-election Palooza episode. We're not really going to be rehashing what we already discussed. Uh, we have a very special guest that's coming on to talk about a number of uh, pertinent issues relating to what things may look like under uh, the Biden administration going forward. Uh, Tim and I are going to revisit a couple of things we said the last time, but um, that'll be brief toward the end of the program. Um, and so that is going to be the focus. Uh, we are, I think, relieved that we have an actual declared winner and we're ready to move forward. And uh, as Tim said, we're, uh, we're, we're advocates for counting legal votes. So um, without, uh, without, uh, without much further ado, uh, let me dispense with the normal um, uh, preliminary matters, which is uh, we are not here giving legal advice. Uh, this is, I will remind you all, a podcast that is meant to be entertaining and conversational. So if we occasionally uh, stray into conjecture or imprecision in what we say, uh, forgive us that. We're we're trying to be as precise as possible, but it does happen occasionally uh, as we are having a conversation throughout the pod. Uh, we're not talking about any confidential information. Uh, if you do like the pod, uh, please subscribe. You can find us anywhere you get your pods uh, or your content. You can find us on YouTube. Um, you're, you would have been treated to a, a real treat of a background by our special guest, but we, um, we voted and told him he had to take it down before we started recording. Uh, and so with that, let me just get to the, to the roadmap for today, and then we will introduce our special guest and, and get on our way. So like I said, we're going to start with, um, and the bulk of the episode is going to be reflections on uh, post-election and where are we heading under a Biden administration. We are going to use the, the main portion of the episode to really focus on areas that Tim and I don't focus on every day and we don't talk about on the pod very often, uh, sort of trade policy that is non-sanctions export control related, trade agreements, tariffs, um, certainly uh, supply chain issues that are not from, again, sort of the sanctions export control perspective that are more on the, uh, the inbound side of things. Um, and, and that's going to be the main focus. We're going to do a bit of a survey around the world. Again, not quite the way we did in the last episode, but we are going to cover uh, China and Europe and, and the U.S. and what we expect going forward. We're then going to um, revisit, like I said, just a couple of issues, I think, that we covered the last time, namely Iran and Cuba. And I think we have some additional thoughts on that now uh, with the benefit of the past couple of weeks and looking at some of the data and some of the feedback coming out of the election. And then in the lightning round, we're really uh, going to move quickly through 
what is happening with TikTok? Uh, I don't think anybody knows at this point. Uh, there's more, there's another preliminary injunction in place. There is nothing coming from CFIUS as of the time of this recording, although today is the deadline for action and divestiture, and we may get something that pops up while we're recording, but uh, we're gonna hit that quickly. And then at the very end, uh, because Tim, uh, Tim is they, the person that brings all of the high class aspects to this broadcast. He insisted that he wanted to talk about uh, the art world and fine art. And so we're gonna, we're gonna spend a minute or two talking about OFAC's uh, advisory relating to um, uh, fine art, which just came out about two weeks ago. When so, you think OFAC, you think art. Obviously, I mean, that's, that's, that's the first thing that pops into my head always. Um, and so with that, I think we're ready to get started and we are ready to introduce our special guest, which is, he is not only the first guest in the history of Embargoed, he is now the first two-time guest in the history of Embargoed, Mr. Richard Mojica, our friend, colleague, and partner. What is up, Richard? How are you? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for the invitation. How's it going, uh, Richard? Hey. Until Richard gets his act together and gets his own podcast, uh, he is uh, he is going to continue. We're going to continue. Stuck with to, ours. He's stuck with coming on ours from time to time, uh, and so we thought this was the perfect opportunity to bring him on to talk about what he's thinking about, what he's talking about, uh, what he, the kind of questions he's getting from clients right now uh, relating to the issues he deals with day in day out in terms of what in a what a Biden administration is going to going to look like. So, um, so we obviously spent the last episode talking about quite a bit about from a sanctions and export control perspective, what do we expect um, potentially from a Biden administration? So we're going to pivot a little bit now. And and let me just toss it to you, Richard, just sort of initially, maybe just kind of big picture, what are some, what are some thoughts right off the bat that are, are sort of percolating in your world and, and in your mind at this moment as, as we're moving now toward um, a Biden administration? Sure. Um... So it's it's a really an interesting time because there's um, there's more that has that has is unsaid uh, at this point um, than than what what Biden is actually committed to, and so you have a lot of people that are assuming that that the uh, that the administration is going to roll out or not roll out certain programs just based on what people think makes sense. So I think I should caveat. Uh, this discussion with that. This is all based on kind of putting various parts of of what he has said together with both what we think probably makes sense and and can be done in this in this upcoming administration. There's no uh, no penalties on embargoed for looking into the crystal ball. Right. And, we, and we I hear you guys do that a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All speculation is encouraged, and <laughs> we are we are really in the business of tea leaf reading. So it sounds yes. like you're going into that business as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I'm I'm delving into right now. So. Um, so I, I think overarching the overarching theme is that we're probably going to see uh, protectionism with a different brand. Um, th so some very similar themes um, from what we see in the Trump era trade policy are going to reappear in the Bi Biden era uh, uh, trade policy, but we're just going to see it kind of packaged in a different way. And we're also going to see, I think, some new ideas that may or may not be dead on arrival, depending on on uh, how the Senate and just Congress shapes up and what happens you know, over the course of time. But, uh, and I, I see basically four core ideas that I think most people agree, most people in, in trade agree uh, are gonna be the cornerstone of his, of his uh, agenda. 
The first is this concept that trade starts at home and that uh, the, the cornerstone of the, of the trade policy has to involve boosting U.S. manufacturing, which is interesting. Um, and again, you know, the, not, not too dissimilar if you look at it from the, from the making America great again type uh, rhetoric. Uh, we're also, you know, borrowing some of that, which is obviously did not belong to Trump, but has a long history, and and it's it's uh, more it essentially involves the concept of investing heavily in government programs in order to uh, boost U.S. production. And there are, there's there's a, a specific kind of seven hundred billion dollar program that has been laid out by the Biden campaign that involves. Um, a $400 million um, increase in government spending of US-based uh, goods and services, and also an additional 300, $300 billion in new re research and development for US technology concerns. And uh, that's, you know, whether that's aspirational or this is something that's actually gonna come into effect is remains to be seen. But I think one thing that is for sure is that the, the Biden camp has come out and said that this, you know, this is where trade policy starts. Um, and so it has, it has the, the effect of course of, you know, the big federal spending, but it also has uh, other more subtle components, which include tightening these Buy America laws that some have seen as potentially a way that, that could better, in, as written currently now, could be circumvented um, and and pave the way for um, uh, companies that are outside the United States to to win federal contracts, um, and also. Um, another another kind of element that goes into this Buy America platform is going to be repealing uh, Republican-backed tax breaks for U.S. corporations that move jobs overseas. So if you put all of that together, that is, you know, at least the starting point, which is which is heavily dependent on kind of we're gonna the first thing we're gonna do is invest at home. And in fact, this leads to the second point, which is he's he inherits, of course, a lot of trade activity from the Trump era administration, um, two, which we should touch on briefly, you know, one is trade agreements that, that are, that are on the, on the, on their way. And the other is of course the tariffs. And, um, there's, you know, a frequent question that we get, maybe we touch on the tariffs first is what's going to happen with those. Um, and, and I, I think, I think that the answer to that is, is that you know he inherits bargaining chips, um, and he will probably um, he don't, we we know he doesn't love the tariffs, but he's not going to be able to do much about them at least in the short term. And so what will probably happen, what we'll probably see is a, a Biden administration looking for ways to uh, looking for concessions in exchange for removing uh, some or all of the tariffs. What that means in practice is really too hard to tell right now, especially as it concerns China. I think there's a general consensus that in, in the short term, there's really nothing that can be negotiated quickly that would move the needle in such a way that the Biden would say, okay, we're gonna get rid of these tariffs. And that includes getting rid of the reciprocal tariffs in China. That's probably not enough. So whether they can, they can negotiate something that goes more to the heart of the issues that started this whole thing, um, issues like IP protection, cybersecurity, um, et cetera, um, are, you know, will be, I think, at the heart of, of whether, 
whether you can do something with those tariffs or leave them leave them alone for the time being. Yeah. And then, so let me ask you this. Um, <clears throat> so you t you obviously touched on a, a bunch of things that I think we'll come back to here, but yeah. um, the you know you did mention uh, earlier this idea of you said when you're talking as in the lead up to the tariffs discussion when you're talking about sort of the buy american and and some of those the starts at home two two sort of questions for you before we come back to the tariffs for a second mm -hmm. so number one in terms of some of the the spending that we're talking about purchasing of us goods uh and you know research and development investment things like that i've seen at least in some places that people speculating experts speculating that perhaps there could be, you know, contentions made by China and others that this is the same kind of government-backed subsidy that, you know, we are quick to sort of point and say, well, China's not playing fairly when they're doing this. Other governments are not playing fairly when we're doing this. So that's one question is sort of how would you handicap the likelihood that that's going to be a real obstacle if that is if that is something that actually comes to fruition? And then the other related issue is this sort of reshoring of supply chains, which I know we're going to come back to in a little bit, but this is obviously a massive issue for all kinds of reasons uh, that you've touched on a little bit, IP protection, creation of, of jobs, um, all those types of things, you know, secure, national security concerns, um, all of those things. So, um, you know, I guess uh, curious to sort of uh, just hear maybe preliminarily how you think that that is how how they can incentivize and and you you cited the tax cuts that that's obviously given the composition that we're likely dealing with in Congress, which is probably divided Congress to start a Biden administration, you know, how likely do we think that is to get any gain any steam? I, I think that's the big question. Um, and and uh, when you hear Republicans talk about it, um, including including some of our colleagues in that work in that space more closely, um, they, they will tell you that some of these proposals in, in, in the, the Buy America overarching proposal is 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 going to be incredibly hard to get through. Uh, and then there's there's that just coming from a political point of view of the Republicans not wanting to pass this. And from there's another component of it. And it's like, in, in effect, um, when you when you start looking at the nuances of government procurement and exactly, you know, there's the, obviously there's this desire to make to buy as much as you as you can from the US. But as you and I know, there's you know that would essentially mean that we stop the U.S. government stops buying electronics, which are all made abroad. So, um, you know I, that that's just one example. So I, I think there's kind of like a practical reality of how this whether this can truly materialize from the grand plan that has been laid out. Um, in terms of like, can can you can someone actually make these type of products in the United States now or in the short term? And I know there's the reason to be skeptical of that. And then there's the other component, which is that, as, as you know, the, the Republican opposition to this is is going to be a high bar to, to cross. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, kind of following up on Brian's question, I mean, how much of what we're talking about can be done through purely executive action? And then what, what, are, what changes are going to require congressional action? Because I, I, I think, for the time being, it seems strikes me as very unlikely that we're going to get major congressional action on any of this stuff. But this, the things that that a President Biden could do on day one strike me as much more viable. Although, you know, for the reasons that you've talked about, potentially things that 
President Biden wouldn't want to do because he has kind of mixed messages from his base, exactly. on whether they like the tariffs or not. Exactly, and 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 to look at the type of things that you that you that he could touch uh, unilaterally, or actually just not unilaterally, but through executive action. Um, you you also you almost have to look at the at the Trump playbook and see what he was able to do um, without going through to, through Congress, and um, and here is you know on, on one hand you know that that the tariffs are a negotiating tool. Um, he could in the same way that they were imposed without going through Congress, he could do the same in in find a way to negotiate and get concessions for those, um, and that in a way seems much more likely. Than, than some of these grand plans that would involve such a big buy-in from from other stakeholders, including Congress. Um, but at this, but you you note the other point that is so important that when it comes to when it comes to China, and this may be just a good segue to move to kind of a broader China discussion. When we when it comes to China, he comes in at a time where being hard on China is uh, a, a favored position on both sides of the aisle. So he will. My guess is he he will take that stance. Yeah, we. So we are on the record repeatedly on the pod as saying that the tough on China era is here to stay, and there's not going to be any going back to any perceived you know softer, gentler, more cooperative time anytime soon. Uh, so I think we we agree with that 100. Uh, percent You know, one one question that sort of is raised, I think, by the the nature of the you know the trade deal as it exists today and i know there's been a lot written about and when you were on the last time you talked about kind of the practical realities of the trade deal and a potential phase 2 and all the rest of it and and we've seen all the articles coming from china that are like well it's time to renegotiate the trade deal because they don't like it very much either they're not going to they're not going to meet the mark on a, a number of the um you know the benchmarks and so um, I guess number one is sort of how likely do you think that is to happen? And then just the broader question, which I think is where you were heading when you started talking about the tariffs a little bit, is assuming that they're mostly going to be thought of as as useful bargaining chips for a Biden administration to potentially chip away or or sort of target in a more strategic way some of the goals that they might have vis-a-vis -vis China and 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 other uh, kind of big trade issues. Um, what do we think? What do we think there is that could be extracted from China that would actually be meaningful and you know sort of significant for the U.S.? I mean, because I think you started with IP protection and security, cybersecurity, and human rights, and a number of these issues, which certainly from my time in government have these things have been around and have been concerns for years and years and years and and have been viewed by many as sort of intractable problems that are just not things that can really be negotiated in a successful way with China because there's no trust there and because you know there's just what do you what are you actually getting what is the benefit of the bargain that the US would really be getting if they make some sort of a deal on those terms so yeah that is that is a that is an incredibly hard question and i, I and i i think that that's one that um no one really knows right now um the it's while while people agree that 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 the tariffs are are a bargaining chip they don't really know what they can get in return because what are you bargaining we, for what are you bargaining <laughs> what are you bargaining for and there are some that would say you know at the at the US company level that would say like we understand that by removing the tariffs 
uh, we would not be addressing some of the some of the core structural issues that are also very important to us. However, uh, the the result of these tariffs have been to hurt us um, rather than help us. So we'd rather go back to the situation that we were in. Right. you know, before and, and, and without having to, in addition to those core issues, have to pay tariffs on inbound and outbound shipments. Well, they've always, uh, they've always struck me as kind of a strange bargaining chip. Uh, and for the, for the people who are not watching this on YouTube, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm doing right now. It almost, almost strikes me as a kind of holding a gun up to your head and saying, stop or the dumb guy gets it. Because, because <laughs> basically it's like, it's a great bargaining chip. We're going to hurt our farmers and we're going to hurt our economy by imposing these tariffs that are going to make all of the, the costs of Chinese goods higher. Now that does hurt China sales, but to the extent we're still buying stuff from China, it drives up our own prices. And so we've got this quote unquote bargaining chip, but essentially we're 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 holding it over China's head by hurting ourselves. And that seems like one where, you know, you you'd really like to see a situation where there could be de-escalation through getting rid of this quote unquote bargaining chip. But I, I guess nobody wants to back down because they're worried that they might lose face if they walk away from this bargaining chip that no one really wanted in the first place. Right. Right. That's a it's a great it's a, that's a great point. I mean, it's it's, <laughs> which is the reason why um, I think you there's general general consensus right now that uh, the expectation at least is that these tariffs are going to remain uh, at least in the short term. And another expectation um, is that to answer your question, Brian, that that we're not going to see any any real movement in um, in in with with regards to the China deal. Um, there's there's been reports that the Chinese are looking to Biden as you know an opportunity to re renegotiate phase one, which is seen as um, unfair and um, and uh, just kind of impossible to meet. You know the reality is that the uh, the only thing that that deal achieved were some uh, purchasing commitments that China has not met, kind of plain and simple. And therefore, uh, you know there's there isn't much there to do other than you know whether whether he's going to double down on Trump's deal and actually try to try to kind of get those commitments. Well, I mean, doesn't so my understanding is that China doesn't like the deal that they cut with with President Trump, which I think we've talked about on earlier podcasts when when you were on Richard about mm -hmm. how it wasn't even that great a deal to begin with because it was Chinese commitments to buy a you know, small amount of extra American goods, but, but but now we've seen that even when China commits to something very minor, they don't live up to it and they don't like it. So so what's the point of further negotiations to get further commitments of China, given that they haven't even met the minimal commitments that they've made already? Right. I mean, I mean, the, all of this, I mean, the, the commitments were big, but it's still, but it, it went to kind of President Trump's obsession with closing the trade deficit within the countries. I mean, that's what that was, that's what right. it represented. Um, if you wanted to go to a phase two, I mean, the idea is the phase two is going to cover, you know, these ongoing negotiations on these really tough issues that, as Brian mentioned, have been kicked around for a long time without much progress. Um, and so it just, it, it, and, and, and what happened between phase one and, and the, the possible possibility of phase two is that coronavirus hit and Trump blamed um, uh, China for the virus. So the relationships are at a kind of an all-time low. And and another thing that has happened in the in the interim is um, that there's been a huge effort by the U.S. government to um, 
to to kind of sponsor the decoupling of of supply chain of the of the supply chain from from China, and so um, you're getting pressure in a number of different ways, and and it just all of this taken together, regardless of who is the uh, you know president, makes it just really hard to kick off some significant negotiations because trust is at a lower point even than you know when uh, when this whole thing started. Let me ask one more question, and then maybe we can pivot away from China because we could, as we tend to, as tend to tends to happen on this pod, we can talk about China the, the mm -hmm. entire time. Um, so we talked earlier, or we we tossed around earlier the idea of what is it that if there's going to be any kind of so let's assume for the moment, no, no real incentive to do a wholesale negotiation. However, I think everybody seems to agree and recognize that there's enough moving pieces and parts and chips out there that there will likely be some desire to, to talk and reevaluate mm -hmm. and perhaps extract some kind of concessions from China in order to kind of move, at least reorganize the, the, the chessboard somewhat, if you will. Um, let me throw this out at you. So there's a couple of things that one, one of which has certainly been part of the equation to date, but a cynical view would be it's only been part of it because it's pure leverage and not because there's any real desire to advance these considerations. And then one which has firmly been out of the picture, and that's human rights considerations and environmental considerations. So environmental considerations obviously have not been part of this at all um, because that was basically cast aside by the Trump administration. With respect to human rights, there has plenty, been plenty of activity recently that has been kind of with a focus and a stated purpose of serving human rights um, uh, you know, goals that the US has with respect to Xinjiang, with respect to Hong Kong, with respect to um, all kinds of other things going on um, in China, the, you know, the the, the Uyghurs, the surveillance state, South China Sea, all of those things to some degree have, you know, kind of uh, have some element of that in them, some more than others. Um, you know, what do we, do you have any thoughts as to sort of what, uh, you know, I'm not saying a grand solution would look like necessarily, but sort of what are, what are the types of things that might be appealing or might be enough to um, sort of spark interest for the US uh, on either of those fronts, perhaps with China? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question, and it's one that you know we've been monitoring over the years um, as as mostly aspirational, um, and as a result of um, just kind of an uptick in the interest on a on a government wide scale, and in particular in Xinjiang in China, um, we we we're seeing just a lot more activity from the uh, enforcement agencies in the United States, and which has led to which has prompted um, companies to take some serious steps to to make changes, um, and and even even if there are even where where there are no you know particular issues in a in it, with a company's supply chain, just the act of the the threat of penalties and the threat of of uh, bad publicity has uh, led companies to um, to. Give human rights, you know, uh, investigate whether there's any forced labor in their supply chain much more seriously than it has in the past. And so, in that in that regard, I think you you have to you have to give it to them that 
uh, th this pressure on on sensitive human rights issues has 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 in fact led companies to to kind of look into these issues and discontinue uh, relationships with suppliers where the where the situation may be kind of iffy over there. Well, one, um, one of the things one of the things that's important about that, Richard, and I agree that that has been a, a big feature of U.S.-China relations in the last few years, is that it's it's been at least in part and maybe even the the majority driven by Congress, and so the Xinjiang, you know. Uh, the, the Xinjiang advisory flowed from a law that Congress had recently passed. Um, you've got the, the Hong Kong Autonomy Act, which is also kind of being driven by Congress. And so I, it's hard to imagine those sorts of pressures going away since Congress is basically the same. And you've got a Biden administration coming in that is talking, I think, more about human rights issues around the world than the Trump administration is. Yeah, so, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, we've been working on this a bit. Um, and uh, and we we've seen um, movement both at the at the agency with uh, State Department, uh, OFAC, uh, and 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 in, in my case, the one I've seen the most is U.S. Customs, really taking taking a big role in the enforcement of imp of investigations into imports of products that are allegedly made with forced labor. Um, we're seeing activity at uh, as you know, Tim, in Congress. Uh, with some with some bills that we we believe will become uh, law in the perhaps in the in the in the lame duck, uh, and that would impose some some additional um, requirements both in due diligence and in reporting to companies on the issue, and uh, throughout this, I think that there's also this expectation that um, executive an executive order could come on this, uh, in particular as it concerns China. Uh, and and the and Xinjiang uh, the Uyghur issue in Xinjiang in particular, so I so uh, uh, taken together I think we we're, we're seeing this 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 you know perfect storm of of you know multilateral approach that that's kind of bubbling up and and it, it aligns what's what's very interesting as as Brian noted is that it aligned with uh, Trump's um, kind of overarching goal of getting companies. To get away from China, but it also aligns with uh, Biden's goal. You know, Biden's just kind of roots in labor issues, and it would resonate. It's going to resonate with uh, his base in the United States if he decides to pursue that path. I think. Yeah, I think the the way you said it, it's sort of perfect storm. I also we've discussed this recently, and I think you said there's there seems to be a lot of momentum kind of heading in this direction to continue, and perhaps even expand somewhat in this area with China. So. I think that's a. I think that is certainly a, a thing that we all believe is 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 going to be front and center here for the mm -hmm. uh, foreseeable future with respect to China. So let's. Why don't we use this as a pivot to go away from China over to our friends in in Europe in the EU, mm -hmm. um, as they're actually timely because earlier this week there was the big announcement relating to the the Airbus tariffs uh, that were imposed. So. Um, what do we just sort of not necessarily on that issue particularly, but just sort of with respect to the EU generally and the perhaps frayed status of uh, what are some of our closest uh, your relations with some of our closest allies? What do you what do you sort of see there as maybe in the in the near term and then perhaps long term goals for the Biden administration? Yeah, I mean, th this is where I see yeah, you know, clear and uh, opportunity for the Biden administration, and to, to start out, they can. I think they can, they can um, patch up that relationship with with Europe um, uh, somewhat quickly, uh, based on 
um, you know, ex extending, well, I mean, conversations that have already been had about the topic and, and it would require uh, the U.S. To, to extend the olive branch after, after you know, what has happened over the past four years. Um, one, one easy way that this could, this could, I mean, I don't know if it's easy, but one way this could happen is um, the, the Airbus tariffs that um, were imposed by the U.S. and on which the EU recently announced uh, that, that they are retaliating, or actually they have already started to, um, the Europeans have made it clear that they want to cut a deal with the United States. And so this is one of those this is one of those areas where you know you, you, by removing tariffs on both ends you know it could be seen as just an act of goodwill to keep to patch up these relationships. What's so important is that I, um, to me uh, Europe is going to be critical to um, in 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 the in the China strategy. I mean, don't mean to go back to China, but but I mean a huge lever here is going to be to enlist the the european countries as allies as they've as they've as, as they've been over the years in order to be uh to serve as a counterweight against the rise of china the continued rise of china um and so the better the relationships the more likely you know th that this will happen and and biden's china policy will involve um you know, not a, a unilateral action, but a multilateral action with all of these, you know, good friends over the years. Um, so I think Airbus, the Airbus tariffs, you know, have to go. Um, there's the Section 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum, um, which also, um, you know, I, I think there's, I, I'm, I'm assuming that Biden is going to be less hawkish on those. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll see whether whether he, he will, but I think that there's also, there an opportunity to say we'll take these these uh, tariffs away on your steel and aluminum in exchange for something else, and um, there is where I think Biden could get aspirational and creative. Um, his part of part of uh, his kind of core trade policy involves, as you mentioned, Brian, elements of um, you know that involve curbing uh, climate emissions and, and climate change, um, and so. Um, Perhaps he could say, "Okay, we could we'll get rid of these tariffs, or we'll you know using just trade in general, these trade tools in general to advance an environmental policy." So um, there's been there's been talk about you know a carbon adjust, uh, adjustment tax, uh, which would essentially amount to another tariff. But basically, if the Europeans were to agree to certain um, uh, to, to certain would it were to concede to agreeing to to, to certain um, standards that that the U.S. likes on on the products that they export to the United States, uh, or on their commitments uh, elsewhere in a way that aligns with the U.S. environmental policy, even if it doesn't involve the import and export of products, um, I think that that would that would go a long way. So so let me ask let me let me come back to a little bit of a reality check now. I mean, again, we started with. And I think it's very clear from all of the public statements uh, and just generally what the what we know to be the sort of highest priority uh, issues for the Biden administration, which is you know the pandemic, the U.S. economy. Um, there have been statements made essentially saying, "Look, tr we want to make you know build bridges again, sort of restore some of this, the goodwill that we maybe have lost in the last few years with, with mm -hmm. close allies and otherwise." But it's going to be a little. It's going to take a little time. We're going to have to kind of get the fires under control at home before we're doing all those types of things. Now, I know, for example, that there's. I believe there's a free trade agreement that's under 
that's being negotiated with the UK, right? Yeah. At the moment. Yeah. And then we didn't we didn't talk about before, but obviously there's the the TPP or at least the the second TPP 2.0, CPTPP, mm-hmm. um, that was always was seen as a centerpiece of the Obama era policy to try to counterbalance China's influence. Um, what, do, what do you see there in terms of those types of multilateral and bilateral trade agreements? Anything that people should look out for kind of in the near term that could move quick? Or are we thinking that th- these are going to kind of kind of slog along and, and it'll it'll be a little while before we really know which way the wind's blowing on some of those? I think it's going to be a little while. Uh, you, you have two active uh, free trade agreement negotiations that Biden inherits, It's and that's UK and Kenya. Um, and on the UK, um, there's a, the, a, a big issue that is discussed among the trade nerds is whether um, Biden is going to be able to, uh, will have trade promotion authority, which allows an up or down vote at Congress. Uh, and that expires on, on uh, July 1st of next year. So he would, you know, essentially it would need to happen before then in order for the agreement to uh, be finalized. Um, and by what, what we're hearing from, from the campaign and, um, and, and has, been, uh, has been said since, you know, since uh, the election is that is this likely is not going to happen over the first 100 days for the reasons you just mentioned, because they really want to stick to trade begins at home and we're not going to go out and negotiate agreements until we figure out you know, what's going on at home and make some things right. So because of that, I think that it's that nothing is going to happen with the UK soon. And there's another agreement with the EU at large that still needs much more work. And that too is going to be on the cooler for a bit. Um, now, the, 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 the extended TPP is really interesting because, you know, of course, Biden with Obama were, were, were uh, largely some of the architects of that agreement. And, um, and and they liked the, this idea that you know resonated to them at that time of of having a, a an agreement an agreement that includes what eleven or twelve or countries that would together serve as a serve as a counterweight to China because China is not invited, uh, and so that would align with this with this general strategy of 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 uh, dealing with China as a group rather than as a as you know unilaterally but for the same reasons we've been discussing it just that involves a lot of legwork that the US is not willing to put up at least in the short term yeah i would also just say on that front and i think this is where you started and i think we've we're certainly firmly in this camp and i think everything you read suggests that this is just this is the the reality is that the sort of era of kind of steady globalization, at least for the time being, is over. There's been a sort of a retraction phase now where the more protectionist impulses of the US and other global, uh, you know, the leading global economies have kind of kicked in. Uh, you know, UK is, is not going to be part of the EU anymore, all these other things, right? It's all it's all of a piece. And so it seems to me that that would be, that's a tough task and a tough hurdle to surmount to to sort of get something like the you know the CPT to get the U.S. back involved in something like the the TPP you know version 2.0. Right. I, I think you know considering um, the big at least maybe not in in the when when you when it when you boil down like to the ba- the basic tenets of the uh, 
of the trade policy, but the shift from Trump to to Biden is big in many many other respects, and that's what you just kind of keep in mind that this is that trade policy when you when you when you take it away from the from the from the headline and it just becomes part of one of many priorities, it no longer has that same impulse as it had before. Yeah, yeah. One other thing that we've talked about a lot, which I'm curious to get your thoughts on, and then maybe we can um, wrap up with any any final parting thoughts you have is. I think, you know, certainly as we have experienced over the last several years, part of the, um, you know, part of the uh, aura around the Trump era trade policy is just the, just the inherent unpredictability of it. Mm-hmm. it, it it's, 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 uh, you know, it's, it's literally could be wake up, there's a tweet and then there's an executive order that's coming out a couple of days later and with no warning to anybody. And that's going to fundamentally send us off down a different path <laughs> sure. or, or target a different actor or activity in a way that hadn't really been, uh, you know, conceived of previously. Mm-hmm. So um, everything Biden has been saying, obviously, is, no, we're, we're going to think strategically. We're going to we're going to sort of move incrementally. We're going to, you know, do all those things. And the tone, obviously, going from sort of, you know, trying to be the loudest person in the room at all times to a bit more measured, perhaps somebody who, uh, you know, wants to be able to cut deals, collaborate and be cooperative is just those things just fundamentally are just going to be, it's going to be a, a massive shift, obviously. So I guess the question would be, you know, what do we think? I think the tone tone matters, right? I mean, I think that's kind of one thing that we've been saying and that we believe just substance may not differ all that much now versus a year from now, perhaps in all, in all the areas we're touching on, but that tone and, and sort of maybe bringing, you know, taking a more multilateral approach on, on many of these issues, um, you know, where possible might, might really, you know, we may see a, a, some big changes there. Completely. I think the tone is going to matter a lot. I, I actually don't know if it's going to matter with China. You probably know that's, this better that's, than that's, I do. That's, that's, I, I will say, I will say this on China. I mean, it must be from the perspective of the Chinese, very difficult to know what to do when the party on the other side, on the one hand with ZTE, for example, says, ZTE, you're on the denied party list. You're never getting US origin stuff. You're you're in big trouble and, and we, we won't put up with what you're doing with respect to this settlement. And then like three days later, the president sends out a tweet that says, this is too harsh. It, it's his own administration. What my administration did to ZTE was too harsh because it's it's costing too many Chinese jobs, and so I'm going to change it completely. And so, from the from the perspective of the counterparties, it can't be very easy to deal with a, a country that, on day one, that the Trump administration says X, and then on day three, the Trump administration, in the form of Trump, says not X. <laughs> right. And so, so you know, it's not just tone. I do think that that actually strategically coming up with a policy and then adhering to that policy and having your counterparties, whether they're allies or adversaries or what have you, know that that's going to be your policy um, definitely sets a different set of expectations for the rest of the world than have been there for the last four years. Yeah. I Also, it's been said many times before, but China and the Chinese government respect actions, not words. And so when there's a lot of flailing about and different rhetoric thrown around at all times to suggest that, you know, we're acting tough. Uh, and sometimes that marries up and sometimes that doesn't. It's, it is probably a little hard to parse ultimately for, for the Chinese, um, you know, powers that be. And if, if, if 
we're entering perhaps a slightly more measured um, let's think before we act rather than um, speak and then figure out how we're going to act in response, then that that could certainly be a difference. Yeah. And and that's, I mean, that's, that's a good segue to end, I think, uh, on this, because uh, the reality is that there's a lot of, that's certainly the signal on everything, on, on, on every kind of aspect of trade policy that we, we need to, we're going to evaluate, we're going to get a good group together, and we're going to come up with a good plan. Um, and so, we should we should do this again when those plans have been fleshed out because at this point you know right it, 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 there is very little there is very little to that we're certain of um, other than it will be deliberate it will be more deliberate and more friendly I guess all right that is I think a good place to end so cool. um, Richard Mojica we thank you very much for yeah making, thank you for the invitation make, yeah, making thank you for history. coming on. And, Our first two-time guest. And you've already set up your next appearance. I mean, once yeah. these once these policy groups come up with the policy, we will talk about what those policies are. I just want to I want to I want to I want to maintain the record as as the uh, <laughs> most frequent uh, uh, guest. So that's so this is why I'm I'm already l- looking for my third appearance. We'll we'll keep you apprised if if anybody's on your heels. But, uh, <laughs> right. All right. Thanks, Richard. All right. Thank see you, later. Richard. Take it Bye. easy. We'll we'll always have you back, Richard. <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys. Bye. All right. So uh, with that, let's um, let's transition now to. So thank you to Richard. We really appreciate him taking the time to jump on. Um, we will definitely have him on again. He's, he's a good egg. He's a good egg and a and a, a good lawyer and a good friend. Um, so we are now, I think, going to spend the the balance of our time in the main portion here, just revisiting a couple of issues that, and a couple of countries in particular that we talked about. Um, on the last episode, and that would be Iran and Cuba. And for that, let me let me kick kick it over to Tim to sort of give his thoughts on the on those two areas. Thanks, Brian. And and so what we want to do is on the last episode, if you listen to it, we went through a, a bunch of different sanctions programs and a bunch of different kind of country trade programs, uh, and compared and contrasted what a president. Trump would do in a second Trump administration with it, what a prospective President Biden would do. But now that uh, there is a President Biden, we're not going to go back over all of the the predictions or the discussions that we had about the, the Biden administration, but things are coming into more focus now that there is a President-elect Biden. And there have been a couple of issues that the thinking, at least my thinking, and I, I've talked about it with you some, Brian, and I think you're thinking also, is is evolving because there's new information. And I, I think those two countries are Iran and Cuba. So on the Iran issue, on the last podcast, I think what we talked about was how difficult it would be to go back to the JCPOA, that it we, we that, that the Trump administration pulled the United States out of the, 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 the nuclear deal, the JCPOA, uh, and and the Biden administration, at least in a perfect world, I think, would want to go right back to the nuclear deal because it was one of President Obama's, what, what I think he would view as one of his big policy achievements. And I think President Biden or President-elect Biden, soon to be President Biden, felt the same way. And that's, uh, I think, some of what he talked about. So we suggested that that although President Biden might want to go back to the nuclear deal. The problem is, is that things have changed considerably since 2016. And the main thing that has changed is that uh, when President Trump pulled the United States out of the the nuclear deal, after a while, 
uh, Iran decided that it's not bound by the nuclear deal either and restarted its nuclear program. And so, so we are in a situation where going back to the nuclear deal would require both sides to have some movement. And President Biden can really only control what the United States does. And he certainly can't enter back into a nuclear deal with a country that is not abiding by the nuclear commitments that it made. So, so that was where we left it. it since, the, since the presidential election, uh, we've been seeing a lot of statements coming out of Iran suggesting that Iran is inclined to get back into the nuclear deal. The United States certainly could, if Iran were to come back into compliance, uh, President Biden could repeal in a stroke of a pen all of the sanctions that President Trump implemented when we pulled out of the nuclear deal. And so I have become much more optimistic about the, the possibility of the, of the JCPOA coming back into existence. And I guess the one fact that I would add that isn't really new, but I think does kind of inform this view is that President Biden has already made many statements talking about healing relationships with our allies in Europe. And the Europeans clearly at the time that the US pulled out of the nuclear deal, President Macron, um, um, Chancellor Merkel, uh, and, and at the time that the UK leadership were all uh, not in favor of what the United States was doing and they continued to be in favor of getting back into the nuclear deal. And so as a result, I I'm becoming uh, more optimistic that the parties will get together and come up with something uh, in the post-JCPOA world that resembles the JCPOA. I think there's probably still work that needs to be done on both sides, and there may need to be a, a new deal, but I think that that is something that I that, that the post-election developments have made me more optimistic about than I was at the time that we did the podcast before the election. Yeah, let me just add a couple of thoughts to that. So, and what you're talking about is essentially, and I've seen it described in many places as JCPOA plus, is that if there was going to come, a, a, if the U.S. was going to get back in, there was going to have to be JCPOA plus, which is essentially the old deal plus some you know new conditions, of course, relating to sort of sunsetting of certain provisions, relating to other ballistic missile restrictions and and other things that are pretty big regional concerns, and that some of our allies in the region are not. We're not in favor of initially. Many in the many in the U.S. were not in favor of initially, and thought we didn't go far enough. And that was sort of the basis of the pullout by President Trump in the first instance. So, a couple of things. Um, number one, uh, Iran is certainly making noise that they would maybe be interested in rekindling, let's say. But I, this is there's going to have to be a lot of signaling and coming together because. The Biden has said uh, they have to get back in compliance before we get back in. So that that's number one. So that's a that's a stumbling block right there. And and I don't know what it's what it would take to do that, but that that that's pretty complicated to to sort of get get that train heading in that direction after you know two years of going in the wrong direction. So that's number one. Um, number two, there's an there's an election coming up in Iran next year, and there's some speculation that. It's hard. It's, I've seen predictions both ways that depending if a you know if a hardliner wins, then perhaps that makes it less likely. If somebody more like President Rouhani wins, maybe that makes it more likely that there could be some detente, some agreement here, some try you know try let's try this again 2.0 or JCPOA plus. But hard to know what that means, right? So that's another that's another wild card. And then the last thing I would say is, and this is kind of a big one. It, 
we talked about this just a couple of episodes ago when there was the um, the U.S. was trying or purporting to unilaterally reimpose U.N. sanctions on Iran. This is just six weeks ago or whatever it was. Um, there's no telling what is going to happen in the next two months <laughs> with respect to Iran. So yes, theoretically, if it's all just if there are you know a dozen new executive orders that come out uh, between now and in mid January that are you know trying to tie. Biden's hands and make thing make it even more difficult to um, you know get back into the to the deal or some new version of the deal. That's one thing, but I I honestly don't I, I can't even conceive of what this what could be coming. And I know that I I have no reason to think that there's any there's going to be any shortage. They're going to all all guns and ammo are going to be fired at this one. This is, there's going to be nothing left in the, in the chamber uh, of the people who are kind of have their hands on the levers of power at the, at the moment. And so we will have to see where this lands before Biden actually takes over. Right. I I agree with that, but I will say this. So, so there's not much that the Trump administration can do with respect to Iran um, that, that, that a, the Biden administration can't undo unless it goes through Congress. And I don't think Congress is going to have, certainly the the House is not going to have any role in essentially uh, facilitating things that the Trump administration wants to do during this two-month period. The way that I would foresee this playing out is there are some sanctions that President Trump or the Trump administration imposed against Iran that were above and beyond those in existence at the time of the JCPOA. And and what I'm mostly thinking of are the most recent round of sanctions in which uh, President Trump made all of every Iranian financial institution subject to secondary sanctions. There were some other actions taken as well. I I, I do think that a Biden administration would be smart to think about unilaterally repealing some of those as a goodwill gesture to Iran to say, Iran, it's a new era. These sanctions weren't warranted. We're pulling back on them. Now we need you to start pulling, put, put going back, putting your nuclear commitments back into place as part of a, as you, you put, put it, Brian, a JCPOA plus deal that we'd like to implement in the near future. And so I, I do think that whatever the Trump administration does now, to the extent it can be undone, and to the extent there were a few other measures, recent measures against Iran that were put into a place that seem almost both unnecessary and gratuitous, that the Biden administration might think about starting there as a sign of of kind of a new era in U.S.-Iran relations. Yeah. So I'll end with this, and then this is a segue to, to the Cuba discussion, which is, I think another factor here is the idea that um, this the whole JCPOA generally and the leaving the JCPOA and potentially entering, re-entering the JCPOA or JCPOA plus is, is a very politically divisive issue. There, there is, there is a lot of disagreement in this throughout Congress, throughout the, throughout the country. And to the extent that it is a bit of a hot potato at the moment, and that there's going to, it's going to be hard to uh, perhaps chart a path that is going to uh, both you know, in his own estimation, protect U.S. interests in the best way possible and also be a political win for him, uh, that that might be tough. That might be harder. Yeah. That might be difficult to do, quite frankly, in the short term. So that's another thing that to keep in mind. It, it's going to be a t- threading that needle to come up with the right 
path forward, I think is going to be much harder than it was five years ago when Obama was looking and, and, and was trying to trying to do this the first time around. Yeah, I think the key to framing it is Europe. If Europe asks for this as a sign of goodwill for Europe, because they lost face when we pulled out of the deal quite a bit, that might be the political way for, for President Biden to do it, not to do it for Iran but to do it for our allies in Europe who are asking for it. And if they don't ask for it, or if they don't think that this is important, then it probably won't happen. But if they do, that's how I would see this kind of playing out. Yeah, maybe. I think there's still going to be, there would still be some potential political cost to pay for that here because it'll be, he'll be hammered for uh, putting aside U.S. interest for those of EU interests. No, and, totally. you know, we'll have to, we'll have to see. I don't, I don't know. But, but in terms of political interests, I think the Cuba the Cuba point is is a uh, I think now that we have some data coming out of the election I think the Cuba point and where we think that could be heading is uh, has been clarified uh, quite a bit. Yeah, I mean I think the the I think the thinking on Cuba from both the Obama administration when they relaxed some of the the, the Cuba sanctions and now and and then from the, the then from the Trump administration was very different. I think the Obama administration took the view that that the Cuba sanctions were kind of outdated, weren't really serving any purpose, and really even as a political matter, nobody cared about them. And I I I think I probably would have joined that thinking pre 2020 election. And and the Trump administration was of the opposite view. They I think they felt like the Cuba sanctions were still, and and as they were, you know certainly back in the 90s, 80s, 70s, people thought that this was the case, that they were a political winner in Florida. That is that it, there was a there was a, 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 a discrete and relatively small, but certainly important community in Cuba for whom the Cuba sanctions were very important and everybody else, you know, they, they might be in for or against the Cuba sanctions, but they just didn't think hard about them. But there was a very interested, very adamant, very enthusiastic community in Cuba that was for those sanctions. And if you touch them, you could get into a lot of trouble in Florida. I, I again, I think a lot of people thought that that was that that was a, a a bygone era. But this election showed us that it was not. That that the Cuba sanctions and the Cuba government issue, and certainly U.S.-Cuban relations are still remain a very important issue in certain communities in Cuba. And those communities turned out in droves to vote for President Trump and probably, uh, you know, may have helped him win the election in Florida in a way that that he, he won it by much more in 2020 than he did in 2016 in, in Florida. And, and I think the Trump administration and a lot of the media would attribute that to his Cuba policy. And so on the last episode, we talked about how a Biden administration would probably want to turn back the clock to the Obama era of kind of easing the Cuba sanctions. I have to say, given the election results, it's not clear to me that that's going to happen anymore, because I do think that there will be, or at least there will be a perceived political cost in repealing those sanctions that four years ago, probably four months ago, a lot of people would have thought just didn't really exist, that any penalty would be very small. And, and so it was only kind of upside to repealing the Cuba sanctions and not a lot of downside. 
Yeah, and just to clarify, Tim said people in Cuba. Nobody in Cuba voted in the U.S. election. Sorry. In case anybody's Sorry. listening. Sorry. The Cuban American community in Florida. Count yeah. votes. The right Cuban there. American community in Florida, in particular in Miami-Dade County. And I think the right. data coming out is is striking. It is exactly what Tim said that the the margin there for uh, Biden is. 20% plus lower than it was for Hillary Clinton. And that is a big part of the margin is why he lost Florida is, is the, the turnaround in that vote. And I think that the, and so I agree with, with what Tim was saying in terms of perhaps we overestimated um, or underestimated the re reaction to this. Um, I think it's also of a piece and it's clear now it was a successful strategy to um, you know, it's, it's in concert with the sanctions policy, uh, targeting Venezuela and Nicaragua. And it's this sort of anti, uh, socialist, anti-communist kind of Reagan Bush era, you know, approach. And, and that is still resonant, certainly in that part of the, the United States, certain as there's a, a huge ex, um, patriot community from all those countries that are in, in Florida. And I think that clearly worked clearly worked. And so I think to the extent that, and this, so this goes beyond Cuba to Venezuela and Nicaragua, which we weren't really forecasting any big changes in either of those programs. But I do think that this has put a, that the data from the election in, in Florida puts a marker down that there is a significant political cost that you will pay if you decide to jettison or ease any of these sanctions. Yeah, and if and President Trump, if you're listening, uh, we were not suggesting that your victory in Florida was tainted by election fraud because we know of no election fraud in Florida or elsewhere, and certainly no Cubans actually voting in the Florida election who were not U.S. citizens. Amen to that. Uh, and so, with that, I think we will wrap up the main portion of the program, uh, and we will now move on to the lightning round. Uh, two topics for the lightning round today. Uh, what's happening with TikTok, which I, I don't have my <laughs> I don't have my phone in front of me. So for all I know, uh, something has been issued while we've been broadcast while we've been recording. But um, and then we're going to talk briefly about the OFAC art advisory, as I, as I said before. Um, so with TikTok, we're, when we last left off in the saga, and it's been quiet now for a while, and that's a, a sort of a big piece of the puzzle here. Um, we had talked about, we had preliminary injunctions in place, uh, both with the Tic Tac ByteDance executive order and also the WeChat Tencent executive order. Uh, just about two weeks ago, there was another uh, preliminary injunction that was issued in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania that, uh, it, a nationwide injunction that stopped the, um, from coming into effect the restrictions uh, two through five, if you recall from the executive order, there were essentially five main set types of prohibited transactions. Number, number one was the first one that was um, enjoined by the district court in DC back in September, um, just before that became effective. The other four were enjoined right before the end of October, at the end of October uh, by the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. That was a lawsuit brought by three TikTok users and influencers who make their living by posting videos on TikTok. Um, the the uh, ruling there was based on, um, again, the Berman Amendments and informational materials and the fact that the scope of the, uh, pro the prohibited transactions exceeded the uh, authority under IEPA. And so um, there was a nationwide uh, preliminary injunction in place with respect to all aspects of the TikTok order that we're about, or the prohibitions that were about to go into effect uh, today, 
uh, November 12th when we're recording. Um, the uh, so again, no no executive orders in place, no uh, no prohibitions in place at this point uh, as we as we record. The other piece of this is the CFIUS ordered divestiture and the president the presidential divestiture under his uh, CFIUS authorities. That also is set to was set to um, the 90 day window that was set up by the uh, the August 14th divestiture order that expires today. Uh, and there is, as of the time of our recording, no resolution there. Uh, even though all signals were and the public comments in September were that the deal that had been um, worked out with the um, with Walmart and Oracle and the other US investors basically taking uh, a bigger stake and responsibility for the data privacy aspects of TikTok, it has not been blessed by CFIUS. It has not been approved. Um, for for all we know, there could be um, there could be something going on right this second. Um, there was a uh, an there was an action filed or an appeal filed in the D.C. Circuit at the beginning of this week, where the the lawyers for TikTok and ByteDance essentially said we haven't heard anything from CFIUS. <laughs> it's been radio silence. So my my favorite headline for that was the Fortune headline that was says ghosted by the government. <laughs> it, it's just um that's that's what. That's what's apparently happening. I, I saw, and, and they said, look, the, the order, the divestiture order contemplated a 30-day extension. We've asked for that. We have not gotten an, a response on that. Um, and so uh, that is a great headline. So the, the bottom line, and I think the question I'll throw to you is, what's up with that? What, what do we think is going to happen? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I don't you know, all of this hangs in the balance here. What do we think is going to happen? Um, what do we expect? I, I I am positive we will be talking about this on the next episode. But what what are your what are, what's your forecast for what's going on with TikTok? And are you still going to be able to watch all your favorite videos uh, two weeks from now? You know, I'm really hoping that I can watch more videos uh, from the cranberry juice, dude. Um, and so if that doesn't happen, I'm going to be very disappointed. I, I, I did take a look at the DC Circuit petition that uh, TikTok filed, which struck me as very strong. And it, it raised an issue that I hadn't really thought a lot about, which is that the CFIUS um, divestiture order really looks at an acquisition of Musical.ly, which is more narrow than the actual um, divestiture order purports to be. And so there is, I think it raises a really good point about whether all of what the president wants to do is within the jurisdiction of, of uh, CFIUS at this point. And, yeah. and I, I'm, it raised something that I, I think kind of just goes to show how little thought went into these orders at the time they were raised. They were just trying to, to do something. I, I, I suspect that um, given the serious claims that TikTok has raised and the fact that the government has ghosted them, that that it, it may be that this doesn't happen until January 20th and this becomes President Biden's problem um, to deal with. Uh, and, and he certainly could deal with it by just kind of making the whole thing go away. It's another thing that's possible for him to do that. It certainly would be something that I think uh, that TikTok could re-raise with the Biden administration if the Trump administration t tries to take any binding action now. And there would still be litigation pending that could be settled after a Biden administration takes place. So I see this as something that Biden is going to need to resolve and Trump is not going to be able to do it on his own. Yeah, I'll, I'll just throw out two final thoughts on this. I, I uh, 
some comments that I saw. I think this came, I think this, I saw this in a Reuters article maybe yesterday. A Treasury Department official basically said, it's, we've made clear what needs to be done here and we're continuing to talk to the parties or so it was something I'm paraphrasing, but it was, uh, they, they were pushing back against the idea that they, they've ghosted anybody, it sounds like, and that they've, they claim that they have made the, the sort of criteria clear. Again, query, um, you know, the reporting in September was there was a deal that was done and right. was approved. And we were more worried and thinking that China and the Chinese uh, sort of government apparatus might blow everything up because they wanted to stay face and didn't want to approve something like this. And and now here we are. And it, you know, we, we it may be the U.S. that, that kills this. Um, that's number one. Number two, the, the Biden's uh, proxies have have made comments that suggest we haven't really formulated a, a, a firm view on TikTok at this point, um, unlike Tim, who's an unabashed fan. Um, and so- uh, Who isn't really? <laughs> so I, I think it's, I think you're right that if this, if this kicks around for another two months, uh, it could very well get resolved kind of in a, in a fairly, you know, cool, you know, cooler heads could prevail and, and this could all get resolved in, in the early part of next year, but it remains. And I think you're right that there is probably enough litigation at the moment that's kicking around that could probably run the clock out on the rest of the Trump administration, but it, we'll see. I, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a strange scenario to be in. I don't, I don't think when this first came up that I, I thought this would sort of, um, you know, play out this way, but um, you know, not you know, Stranger Things is the sort of watchword these days. So I'm not, uh, I'm not that surprised. But we'll, we'll have to, we'll keep tabs, and I, I assume we will be talking about this on, the on future episodes of, uh, of, of Embargoed. Well, one thing that's occurring to me as we're talking is that that the Trump administration is kind of piling up issues that uh, the Biden administration would not have created in the first instance, but is going to have a very difficult time figuring out how to unwind. I mean, it's Cuba, it's Iran, it's TikTok, it's all of these things where, you know, President Biden would not have pulled out of the nuclear deal. President Biden would not have would not have kind of repealed all the Obama era loosening of the Cuban regulations. President Biden wouldn't have done any of the things that President Trump has done with respect to TikTok or with respect to WeChat. But it will put him in very politically precarious position and just difficult, complex position to actually undo a lot of these things because it will have costs to actually come in and undo them. If there was one overriding guiding principle to Trump's policy moves, it seemed to be whatever Obama did, I'm doing the opposite. Exactly. <laughs> and so, and so I, I think that's, it's it's not going to quite be, it, the, the mirror image of that is not going to be the case with Biden necessarily, where he can come in and say, I'm just straight undoing everything that President Trump did. I think you're right. I think it's just much more complex than that uh, at this point. And for very for a variety of reasons, it's going to be a, a little more of a delicate uh, process to to do some unwinding in 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 many of these areas. So with that, let's put, uh, let's uh, everybody Please feel free to go download TikTok off the App Store. It's still that's still perfectly legal, at least. And then the download being. our podcast when you do that. Exactly. Uh, and with that, let's go to um, let's go to the world of fine art and see what OFAC has to say about it as our final lightning round topic. I really thought that we should raise the cultural level of this podcast significantly by talking about artwork and OFAC. 
So on October 30th, 2020, the Office of Foreign Assets Control issued an advisory to highlight the sanctions risks that can arise from dealing in high value artwork. And, and please note when OFAC is talking about high value artwork, $100,000 or more is the, the level that OFAC puts it at. So we're, people, at, people at fine galleries around the world snickered when they saw that, by the way. Right. I mean, I, I think, you know, unless it has seven figures, you're you're not, at least with some people, you're not talking about high value artwork, but, but for OFAC, $100,000 is what they, they use and, and, and they urge particular caution when dealing with artwork that has an estimated market value of more than that. The reason that they do is that, um, as OFAC pointed out in the, the circular, um, or as in the advisory, that uh, the market for high value artworks it is one in which uh, there is a lot of anonymity, confidentiality um, in connection with the sale and purchase of this artwork. There are, you know, people create companies to buy and sell artwork, and for and as we should put, point out, for, for completely legitimate reasons, because you know the, the when when the identity of the seller is known or the identity of the buyer is known, it often can change the, the structure of the transaction. And so there are legitimate reasons for maintaining anonymity, but those, uh, but maintaining anonymity also allows for uh, people who, who might not otherwise be able to participate in the U.S. financial system to do that as well. And the Treasury Advisory cited a number of examples in which SDNs had taken advantage of uh, the, the anonymity to buy and sell particular artworks. Uh, there was a discussion of an SDN in Lebanon who had apparently um, used this method of raising money. Uh, he'd been designated for being part of uh, Hezbollah, and there was a discussion of using selling Pablo Picasso and Andy Warhol paintings in order to uh, raise money for those groups. And so, so it is something that OFAC is thinking about and wanted to, to caution. I think the 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 the, the recipient of this message, the, the, the target audience for OFAC was really on um, art galleries, auction houses, that, that sort of thing, um, where, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the, it, the advice from OFAC was that these groups really need to make sure that they're doing due diligence in these situations and, and really have a, a sanctions compliance program and to be thinking about sanctions if they're not thinking about it otherwise. And so um, this is this is definitely a message to that group that if you're, you're not um, paying attention to US sanctions issues, you really ought to be paying attention to US sanctions issues. And I will leave it with the, the other thing though that struck me from this advisory, and, and I, I haven't thought hard enough about it to know where it's going to go, but, you know, the Berman Amendment specifically mentions artwork. So fact does mention that at the very end of the advisory in terms of um, what is exempted from U.S. sanctions laws. So, so you know, the Berman Amendment is typically thought of as allowing for informational materials and that sort of things to be exempted from sanctions provisions uh, generally. But but artworks is something that, you know, isn't thought necessarily immediately of when you're talking about informational materials. You usually think about, you know, print materials or internet materials or that sort of thing. But artworks is specifically mentioned in IEPA as an example of informational materials, which has led to the belief that artworks are exempt from sanctions regulations. And OFAC seems to grudgingly admit that that provision does have some force, but that that nonetheless, um, you can't uh, use 
uh, artworks and the Berman Amendment's mention of artworks as a way around U.S. sanctions for, for people who are on the SDN list. Now, how that plays out in practice, I don't really know, but I think buying and selling artworks is a little bit different than just regulating the export and the import of artworks, which I think really is what the Berman Amendment is getting at. Yeah, I think so. The the two quick points I have are almost identical to what you just made. Uh, I think just like we've talked about in prior advisories that we've seen from OFAC and, and joint advisories from U.S. agencies recently, to me, this is really a shot across the bow to an audience that doesn't necessarily think about these issues all the time. It's a wake-up call. Hey, and, and literally here's the list. It's galleries, art galleries, museums, private art collectors, auction companies, agents, brokers, and other participants in the art market. That's the audience. Now I know so that- So if they're listening, they, they should get our contact information yeah, because they definitely need OPAC lawyers. Yeah, embargoed is very popular in the art gallery world. I know that for a fact. So that doesn't uh, so, surprise me. <laughs> so, but but that's really uh, what this is at, at core. I think is just a, a message to that group, obviously, uh, to to pay attention to this and to take to take some measures to to be um, com- making sure that they're compliant with U.S. sanctions laws and that they they have some ability to do appropriate KYC and other uh, making sure that they're complying. Uh, you know, with with the requirements that are uh, that are applicable to everybody, and then I think the the other piece of that is exactly what Tim said, which is the Berman amendments, uh, which we talked about a bunch with respect to TikTok and informational materials. Uh, I think that the message there is, and I think the way they described it in the advisory was the Berman amendments do not categorically exempt artworks from the scope of our of our of IEPA and TWIA based sanctions authorities essentially and by that all they mean i take that to mean you can't evade you can't actively seek to evade sanctions by selling buying and selling artwork right. and so evasion however you however you package your evasion ofac is going to it's going to say we can we can reach that conduct. That's illegal. That's improper. We can come after you or anybody who's involved in that or anybody potentially who fails to detect that uh, and is sort of party to that. So that I think is the other is the other piece of this. I, I agree with Tim. It'll be interesting to see if there are more if we get an enforcement case or two, perhaps that sort of highlights that exact issue in a more direct way. But uh, that I think is the is the main takeaway is the audience and the um, and the reminder that any any attempt to evade sanctions, even if it's dealing with uh, underlying items that might arguably be carved out from uh, the scope of IEPA or TWIA, uh, proceed with caution. And thus ends our first cultural segment of the Embargoed podcast. I think trivia, I think sanctions trivia counts as a cultural segment. So That's true. Not, I think not trivia and first. culture. Trivia and culture. Exactly. Um, So with that, we are done for our post-election palooza here on Embargoed. Um, Thank you again to our guest, Richard Mojica. Uh, Thank you for all of you who have tuned in. Uh, Again, if you like the pod, please give us a rating, five-star rating, hopefully. Uh, Please subscribe. We will be back just for scheduling purposes. Um, This is going to be up, I believe, on Tuesday the 17th. Uh, because next week, uh, by the time anybody listens to this, next week is Thanksgiving here in the U.S. Uh, we will not be recording on Thanksgiving or the day after Thanksgiving, so we will skip a week. We will have another three-week gap, just like we did with the election. I think there will probably be two pods that come up in December, perhaps the last one being a bit of a reflection on 
on the uh, on 2020 and all that it brought us and all that it took away from us. Uh, and so uh, that's that's what we have coming coming down the road here. But uh, again, until then, um, to everybody, uh, stay well, stay sanctions free. We will catch you next time. Stay safe, everybody. It's it's getting actually pretty rough out there. Yes. Stay right. sanctions free as well. Exactly. Bye, everyone. Thank you.